Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello and welcome to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, and we're going to have part two from our message about the right to repair that we began last week. So hopefully that you had the opportunity to listen to that, and if by chance you did not, please know that that podcast is both on my website, which is farmmachinerydigest.com, under the Idle Chatter tab, and you could also go to Ag Daily and to their website, agdaily.com, under Podcasts, and it will be listed there also. So hopefully today is uh, a good day for you. Over here in Warren County, New Jersey, the uh, weather turned quite a bit uh, fall-like in the past few days. Last week at this time was 86 degrees, and I just looked at the thermometer right now, and it's uh, 51 degrees for the high. And but it is a little bit sunny, which is unusual for what we've had this year. We've really had no sun, as I said in a uh, previous podcast. And I would also just like to uh, bring something else up before we start to get back into our discussion about the important subject of a right to repair your farm equipment. And uh, you know, so many people, you know believe and and rightfully so that if you if you're not allowed to repair it that that you don't own it but when it comes to make the payments it's obviously yours it's almost like the government right pay the taxes and shut up when i go to the town to complain about something they uh just stop short of saying that you know just pay the taxes and shut up and get out of here if you don't like it you know somebody else will pay the taxes so that's almost the same impression that we're getting with the uh right to repair sentiment but uh, we will discuss that uh, in more details as podcast goes on. But, but my invitation to you is to visit my website, farmmachinerydigest.com, and to go to the community tab. And I would be uh, honored, I would love for you to send me some pictures uh, for one of the three sections in that community tab. I have three sections, and the first section is what is in your machinery shed. And in that section, I use the broad term machinery shed, but because this is the Farm Machinery Digest, that I, w- I would love to have pictures of any piece of equipment, tool, what have you, that is near and dear to your heart. You know, oftentimes we all have a piece of equipment, or we have a tool, or we have a toolbox, or a, a wrench, or a welder, or a plant or whatever it may be and even though it may not be the most beautiful thing to us it's beautiful because we have history with it it works great we love it it could have been dad's or granddad's and there's a whole a whole bunch of family ties to it or it could be something that's brand new that's shiny brand new you just and you're proud that you were able to be able to invest in something and purchase it and that brings a different sense of pride so I ask you to please join Mark Oppold from RFD TV on there, and uh, Rodney Miller from Small Town Big Deal, and a host of other farmers that are listening to the podcast and, and visiting the website and starting to send in pictures. So that is what is in your machinery shed. And I have two other tabs, and... The second tab is My Country Tis of Thee, and I invite you to send in pictures that evoke patriotism. And it could be a a flag in a cornfield, it 
could be a, a bumper sticker on the back of a muddy pickup truck. It could be whatever you happen to see in your travels or on your farm or going on your way to town or what have you. And it evokes a sentiment of patriotism for you. And or it could be a picture of someone that has served in the military or is currently serving in the military. So if you go to that section, My Country Tis of Thee, that uh, you'll get an idea of the eclectic nature of anything that falls into that category. And the third section there is all God's creatures. And if anyone has been to my website and have read anything, you'll know that, that I, I love God's creation. And I love animals and God's creation. And it would not be a farm without animals, both of the domestic side or the wild side. So, you know, pictures of your of your of your uh, your animals on the farm, your pets, your livestock, your chickens, what have you. So uh, I invite you to send those. They will be cherished. They will be uh, posted, and they will be there for the world to see. So please take advantage of that. And if you care to write a little caption about what the picture is for any one of those three categories, then we will include it on there. And if you, if you go to that tab, you'll see there's a couple of different sections of people that sent the caption explaining the picture or um, just sent an image. So I'll be very happy to uh, post whatever you give me, and it'll be a great place for the world to see either your what's what's hiding in your machinery shed, and also it could be a toy. It could be a pulling tractor. It could be a motorcycle. It could be a uh, a boat a snowmobile, what have you, a bicycle. So uh, it makes no difference what it is. If it's in your machinery shed, metaphorically, and if it's a patriotic image, or if it's one of God's creatures, it needs to be there for the uh, rest of the world to see. And we also have a, uh, right now there's a, a bull up there. His name is Billy, and he has a very nice picture. He's very photogenic, and he's from Ta Tasmania, Australia. So he's a uh, an Australian Australian fella, or bloke as they would say, that uh, has his picture up at the Farm Machinery Digest. So listen, we'll get going with finishing up today's podcast, and I do also have two special delivery letters. One is from a gentleman in Montana, a farmer and rancher in Montana, that's having a lack of power issue with a 2010 Dodge Ram 4500 with a Cummins diesel. And the other question, just to give you a heads up, is from Joseph in New York. I would assume it's New York State, but who knows? It could be somebody in New York City that's uh, listening to the podcast. And he just says, Joseph in New York, and he has a question about brake calipers, floating brake, uh, floating brake calipers. So we'll answer those at the end. So let's just quickly revisit last week's show and on that I was talking about the right to repair and what you know what's involved with the manufacturers to do to be able to allow us to have the right to repair and I was and I focused that mainly on the electronics on a new, on newer farm equipment and you know keep in mind that as i said last week that you know the right to repair is kind of a touchy subject because within the automobile community as i said last week i that's light trucks also is that in the eyes of the federal government those are consumer vehicles and they fall under a different i'll use the word jurisdiction it may not actually be the proper term but a different ruling then true farm equipment, a sprayer, a tractor, a combine, that falls under more of the jurisdiction or the categories, probably a better word, of commercial equipment. And in those particular instances, the government agencies are not as willing uh, to support the consumer because they look at the consumer as a business entity. And as we all know, that that is not the case with most farms. But needless to say, is that we get... Um, thrown in with the same group of people that would be a, a mine operator or a large trucking company or or shipping operator tugboat company what have you so they just look at that as as a, as commercial equipment and not consumer equipment and that's one of the problems with the laws but the main thing that we were talking about last week was that we would need to have some commonality in the language that the engine management systems speak uh, 
and I explained about serial data and how you could use something that's called a scan tool or today they would call it probably an interface because it's usually through a laptop not a dedicated tool and some sort of uh, commonality in the language so that that if you have a case tractor and a John Deere uh, a John Deere combine and let's say that you have a Hagee sprayer with a Cummins engine in it that you could have one piece of diagnostic equipment and that would uh, allow you to communicate and talk with all three so until we have if we could at least get within the right to repair the idea of of establishing commonality within the industry then that is going to be a big step forward but now what i really want to focus on today is you know, last week i was talking about what the manufacturers need to do and today I'm going to talk about this whole podcast is going to be dedicated about on dedicated to about what you need to do as the farmer and if we are successful with evoking a right to repair law within this industry which I hope we are is that it may be something if we in the agricultural community do not step up to the plate after that law is evoked then I think that uh we would have a lot of egg on our face because we're, we would be uh, pushing to have this access to repair this this equipment and to service this equipment and work on it and then we did not do what we needed to do to be able to to accomplish that task and what we need to do is a three is a three-step uh, has three levels I should say three tiers number one is we would need to invest in the proper shop manuals number two we would need to invest in the proper equipment and number three we would need to invest in educating ourselves and to tell you the truth that 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 was one of the impetuses for me to start the farm machinery digest and this podcast because as i always say in my introduction that there is no transfer of knowledge but I could only transfer knowledge, or the industry can only transfer knowledge to those that want to learn. So there needs to be a commitment on the farmer to invest in the equipment, invest in the shop manuals, and invest in himself or someone on that farm or ranch that is going to be able to become intimate and learn this. And the whole thing the analogy that I would like to make is that I'll I'll talk I'll make the analogy to a to a soil to a soil sample. Or you could you could uh, pull a soil sample from your field and send it into the lab and pay it twenty five or thirty dollars. I use Midwest Labs. I think it's thirty dollars for the test I have. I think it's a two SE or something like that. But anyway, uh, and their complete test of micronutrients and you know I pay my thirty dollars and they they email me the results and I look at it and you know I'm not I'm not an agronomist so the amount of data that I could glean from that is is minimal and I I have taken some classes the Ag PhD guys the Hefty Brothers have an excellent class but sadly it doesn't appear that they're teaching it anymore on um, basic soil test reading and I took that class twice, and I have an idea of what's going on uh, to a certain extent. What I need to look at on that soil test, I, you know, like I really have, uh, I've really latched on to to organic matter and CEC and a couple of things in base saturation, and I have a, I have a, a, a minute familiarity with everything. But even though I took the class two times and have the books and looked at it, I don't have enough of background yet to be able to make my own soil recommendations, soil fertility recommendations, excuse me, or to be able to truly understand what is going on. And the people who truly do understand what's going on is a, an agronomist that went to school and studied this and learned this. I took a three-hour class, so or four-hour class, and it gave me... <clears throat> in so many ways excuse me um it gave me probably just enough knowledge for me to get in trouble but so i know that i would not make my own soil 
uh, fertility recommendations. I keep saying soil fertility recommendations because at this particular point, I only have a, a cursory knowledge of the dynamics of what happens in the soil and with fertility. And the same thing happens when you're looking at equipment. We're looking at the right to repair. And as I said in the beginning of this podcast, I'm going to basically, uh, for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to talk about electronic controls on the equipment, whether it's electronic engine control or other controls, hydraulic controls, transmission controls. But, you know, most anything anything I'll be saying would probably pertain to to 80% of the rest of the machine. But the electronic seems to be the hot spot because people are under the false impression that that a trouble code when it is evoked in the system is basically telling you exactly what's wrong and as I said last week a trouble code is a sensor code and we have to understand what a sensor is whether a sensor on an engine a sensor on a uh, a rotor of a combine or what have you any sensor is nothing but a voltage comparator and what basically happens is a sensor is used to convert a mechanical action or a mechanical condition to an electrical signal, to a voltage. And then the microprocessor, the ECU or ECM, or some people want to call it the slang of brain, now interprets that voltage and makes a decision upon it. So the sensor is basically the information gatherer, and the ECU is the brains. So to make a farm analogy is that you could send one of your your crew or one of your guys or gals out to the field and say, well, go out into the field and I want you to do a, um, let's see, an earthworm count in that field. Uh, we planted cover crops and uh, we killed off the cover crops. We want to see what the earthworm count is. And this is what I want you to do. Take this, take this, uh, two by four piece of this this square one foot by one foot and I want you to to dig down six inches and take the shovel full of dirt and put it on the burlap bag and count how many earthworms that are in that area and then come back and tell me and then we could extrapolate that out from that one square foot or two square foot whatever it happened to be that you used into the size of the field and estimate the earthworm count in that field right so what would happen is that the worker would go out there and they would gather get the data and come back to you and say okay we have 27 earthworms we have 200 earthworms in that that one square foot whatever the number may be i'm making up as i go along and then you would interpret that data and you'd say wow that's really great we have you know 100 earthworms in that in that square foot so the so that cover crop program and my and my soil uh, is in is very healthy soil because of that and so the worker going out into the field is like the sensor all it's basically doing is sending data back to the ecu and just like you would make a determination on whether your soil is healthy based upon the earthworm count the ecu is making a determination upon what it should do with the engine so the ecu has inputs and outputs the inputs are the sensors, the data coming into it, and then the outputs are the controls. And on a modern common rail system, it would be the injectors, it would be the turbocharger wastegate, it would be a whole host of other things. Uh, when it's going to fire the injectors, so those are the outputs. So the inputs are the information gathering, that comes from the sensors, the outputs are the decision-making process that the ECU has made. So any sensor is just an information gatherer and it's converting an electrical signal to excuse me a mechanical condition or to electrical signal so now as i spoke last week about the language is that we need to have a common language and we need to also understand that language so it would be just akin to you going to school and taking a spanish class or a french class or a german class to read that language and and also lots of times when you take a foreign language class they'll also have what they call a uh, 
a conversational class where they would teach you the language and it would include some slangs, it would include some things to interpret. It would not be that rigid structure like we would say the King's English, that it would be that you'd be able to understand and have a, a conversation with someone, but not maybe know uh, every word that was going on. Now, how would you read this language or we would read it through a scan tool as I said or some sort of some, some manner of an interface but that is not the only thing that would be going on is that most times when you have a problem with a with a computer controlled engine or any computer controlled system that uses sensors is that there is not a sensor failure I'm I'm not going to give you a number, but if I was to give you a number on a newer piece of equipment that has this technology, that it's probably a 90% chance that the sensor did not fail. It's not a hard failure. It's not broken. And what happens is that either the operating condition of the engine or the, the output of the sensor for a number of reasons starts to skew so a hard failure is very easy to determine because if you had a code for that sensor and you went and you were able to check that sensor and we'll discuss that in about in a minute and you could say yes this sensor is open the sensor is shorted you go to town you get that sensor let's say it's a coolant sensor and you uh, put it put it take the old one out put that one in you start the engine up beautiful everything is gold and it's working properly but in most instances, the sensor is not failed, the sensor is skewed. And it, the system will not set a trouble code until the reading on that sensor drifts so far. And it could either be drifting so far because of the sensor is skewing or starting to fail, or there could be a mechanical condition in the engine that is not uh, allowing it to function properly and give the sensor the proper reading. And let me give you an example of that. Now, let's say that you have a, uh, and I'll use a gasoline engine because it's an easier explanation. Let's say you have a gasoline engine that is fuel-injected, computer-controlled, 2019, all the, all the bells and whistles you could possibly have. And then it ends up getting a lot of carbon deposits on the intake valve and on the injector because it has a lot of short trips on it. So let's say it's in a, in a UTV on the farm, or a gas-powered UTV. A lot of start-stopping, a lot of idling, a lot of short trips, and uh, short what we call duty cycle, built a lot of carbon. So now, when that injector sprays fuel, it's not atomizing it properly because of the carbon deposits on the injector. And then also, it, it is whatever is going into the engine or into the cylinder, a lot of it is getting leached in by the carbon on the intake valve, what IVD intake valve deposits. So that means that the actual air-fuel ratio, the amount of air and fuel, in this particular instance fuel, that is getting to the cylinder is not sufficient for it to run properly. The ECU sees this, it sees through the oxygen sensor, that the engine is running very lean and it keeps trying to add fuel to try to compensate for this to get the mixture to where it's supposed to be the air fuel ratio and at one particular point and in most systems they could add about 20 to 25 percent fuel or take 20 to 25 percent fuel out to correct the mixture and then after that it sets a trouble code so now it sets a trouble code for lean mixture and if you look at so it says oxygen so the code is oxygen sensor output lean or oxygen sensor output low it has nothing to do with the oxygen sensor it has nothing to do with the wiring it has nothing to do with anything it has to do with carbon deposits and what would basically happen is that if you were astute at reading uh, serial data what you would base in that particular instance staying with this diagnostics is that you would watch the, the voltage on the oxygen sensor and see that it is constantly staying low and then you would take a tool let's say like a propane enrichment tool 
and you would artificially richen the mixture and see if the oxygen sensor responds. If the oxygen sensor responds, then you would know that there's nothing wrong with the system that it is basically only telling you about a situation that is that is that is valid that the engine is lean but why is the engine lean because the engine is loaded with carbon deposits it has nothing to do with anything else so in that particular instance the person and <coughs> don't <laughs> don't think that this doesn't happen in dealerships and they put a $400 oxygen sensor in it and it's the exact same thing so the idea is the point here, and I don't want to belabor this, the point is that you need to become very familiar with these systems and this language and interpreting this data as a agronomist would be interpreting a soil test. And so that is one aspect of your responsibility. And we'll touch on this, we'll get into a little bit more in a few minutes. The other thing I'm going to cover is cost, because that's easy. All you have to do is write a check. Now, in 1987 or 1986, when I was a young man, General Motors came out with a scan tool called the Tech One, and it was their own dedicated scan tool. Other companies had scan tools, uh, Snap-on, a whole bunch of other companies, I can't remember the name, OTC, there was a whole cadre of scan tools. But the scan tools that the that the tool companies made only allowed by by government ruling, they only had to give you so much data, that com, the common language. And back then it wasn't common because I said last week was OBD1. So, but, they didn't, but there was more information available, but they kept that for the manufacturers. When I found out about the Tech One, I was friendly with a Buick dealer, and I told him, I said, that I would like to buy a Tech One. He didn't even have one. And I said to him, I'll just pay him for it, let him order it through his parts department as a dealer service tool, and I'll pay for it. So in 1987, I bought a Tech One. It cost me $2,000 in 1987 for that scan tool, but it allowed me to read data from only General Motors cars, from General Motors cars, and that was also when they came out with what they called bi-directional ECUs that not only did you give it did it give you a data stream but through the tech one I was able to take control of certain functions of the engine I was able to raise the timing lower the timing only temporarily raise the RPM and I was uh, lock up the torque of it, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different things so that was called a bi-directional ECU it now it, you could give it commands through the uh, through the scan tool that technology was not available to the guy into the repair shop and the only reason why i was able to purchase it was because of my association and my friendship with the owner of the buick dealer so that cost two thousand dollars and nineteen eighty seven dollars now granted some of the electronics came down in cost but you're really not paying for the electronics the electronics in these tools are not overly complicated these scan tools uh, you probably have more electronics in your cell phone it's the software and the development and the coding is what you're paying for and since that cannot be amortized across a lot of production that the cost is very high so 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 keep that in mind and the next thing that you have to keep in mind and I did a quick search uh, happen last week and I happened to look at John Deere and I forgot it was for a, a later model combine I think in like an S670 like a 2015 or 16 I did just a Google search and I don't know what was involved with the shop manual that they were offering to sell but it did say it gave uh, engine management system diagnostics and uh, charts in it and what have you and that shop manual I believe was between six and seven hundred dollars so the point that I'm getting at is that if we do get the right repair which I'm reiterating I'm a hundred percent behind and believe that there is going to be a lot of cost to the farmer for this nothing in the right to repair saying that, you, that you're going to have to get that they're going to be able to give you a scan tool or software to read something and it's going to be $49 and also that the shop manuals if they're charging the dealer six or seven hundred dollars eight hundred dollars a thousand dollars for a shop manual for for one model then the thing basically is is that they're not going to sell it to you cheaper than that and they're probably so it's at best it's going to be at the same price that the dealer pays for that manual 
so we have a we have a, th a three-tiered approach now we have to invest in this in the, in the diagnostic equipment we have to uh, buy the proper shop manuals and we also have to invest in ourselves to be able to learn this technology now the other thing that comes into play is that you know when you first start out in mechanics you're a young kid you well, you go to Sears, they're going out of business now, right? But you go to Sears and maybe your mom and dad for Christmas or your uncle got you a basic toolkit and, you know, a 149-piece toolkit with a toolbox and you're a young kid and you thought this was the cat's meow. You got everything to fix everything in the world and you're going to tackle the whole world with it, right? And that was a good start. But when we, but we all know when we work on equipment, no matter how many tools we buy, no matter how many screwdrivers we buy, no matter how many wrenches, no matter how many sockets we buy, the first time we go to work on something, we don't have the right one for it. And that's the whole problem with this industry. There are so many specialized tools and there's just a whole array of, I need a, I need a shorter six-point socket. I need a taller 12-point socket. I need a, I need an offset box and wrench with a 45-degree angle. I need an offset box and wrench with a 60-degree with a angle to get to this particular nut. So you never have enough tools. But what I want to talk about is that you would need the shop manuals, you would need the interface, we'll call it the scan tool, however it is, or the software, and there's going to be two other things you're going to need. One of, and you could today you could get them relatively inexpensively, and that's a digital voltometer and an oscilloscope because when you truly get into diagnosing these things these circuits many times you have to look at an oscilloscope pattern or take a uh, take a volt meter reading and with a digital voltometer it has 10 million to 10 meg ohm impedance and most digital voltometers have that and the reason it needs to have 10 meg ohm impedance is so the voltmeter does not hurt the delicate circuits inside the ECM ECU I use both terms interchangeably the industry does and when you're back probing and checking something buying that is writing a check you could buy it you could buy a really nice digital voltometer for a couple of hundred dollars you could buy one for thirty dollars but you know it's like a like a fluke a nice fluke meter for maybe 150 200 dollars and you could buy they have inexpensive oscilloscopes I mean, when I bought my lab scope, laboratory scope back in the uh, late 90s, I paid $2,500 for it, but they have these little pocket scopes now that you could buy for two or $300. But buying them is, not, is nothing. That's writing a check. If you got $300, you could have a pocket scope. It's learning how to use it and learning how to interpret the signal. And remember, what an oscilloscope does, it's like an EKG machine because an EKG machine is basically an oscilloscope. The heart works on electrical imp electrical pulses. So what the oscilloscope does is takes the electrical signal, whereas a voltmeter just tells you, or, or an ohmmeter, what gives you a number for that circuit, what's what the electrons that are flowing through it, the oscilloscope on the screen draws a picture of how that circuit is responding. So it's basically just like an EKG machine. And the reason why you need that is because lots of times you will have to compare what the serial data link is telling you and what the sensor output is and whether the signal is clean. And what I mean by clean is that that there was that the uh, there is no electrical interference on it. That if it's a sine wave, it's smooth. If it's a square wave, it's square. And in a, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to do a podcast on that. I don't want to get off on a tangent and and go there now because that could probably be another two part podcast. But you're going to need to understand the oscilloscope. You need to buy an oscilloscope, and you're going to need to understand how to use a voltmeter and how to use it proficiently, and how to use it and how to use it intuitively to check these circuits and be able to read the data. So that's the reality of it: is that you would need to know this, and this is all on you. 
because just like I could go to Midwest Labs or any other lab and I could get a soil test, I go in the ground, I got a, you know, I got my my soil test probe and I put it in the ground and I pull out my samples and I send it to the lab and they send me this report back and to me it's a bunch of Chinese, right? That are a couple of things I could pick up on and nothing else would I be able to grow a crop and that's why I send it to my uh, agro-liquid dealer and he basically tells me what I need. But anyway, so... That is something that the industry is not talking about, and I and you know in the in the part one of this podcast, I said the biggest fallacy that that we're perpetrating, the farmer, the equipmentist, the uh, the equipment associations, and what have you, is that we're under the impression that this trouble code, this system is going to self-diagnose. It'll self-diagnose to a certain level. And you don't need to know nothing. You just need for it to tell it that you think it's like a uh, like a, uh, a a GPS in your car. Turn left at this signal. Turn left at the second traffic light. Make a right. Go 300 feet. It's not that way, sadly. And you know this. I'm all about telling you the truth. This is not meant to discourage you, by no means, but it's meant to tell you what the truth is and what it's really about. So it's just like anything. Hey, if you say, I want to look like Charles Atlas, and you go to a gym, probably nobody even remembers who Charles Atlas is today, I'm showing my age. You want to you'll be this, you'll, this this you know great chiseled physique, and you go to a gym and say, show a picture of some guy, some muscle-bound guy, say, I want to look like that. The guy in the gym, the trainer, is going to say, oh, this is what you got to do. You got to lose weight. You got to do this. You got to exercise. I want you to do this, this, this. You got to make this commitment. You got to come to the gym every day. And you say, whoa, 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 I don't want that. I just want to look like that. Well, life is not that way. And as farmers, we all know that. We're not going to be a top-yield farmer without putting any effort into our field. We need to leave no stone unturned to get top yield and for us to be able to to truly if we're fighting for the right to repair and i'm going to say it again i believe that we should have that right to repair but what i'm basically afraid of is that we're going to fight for the right to repair and we're going to win that fight eventually and we're going to spend a lot of money within the agriculture community to to to, uh to earn that right to repair and some of you are going to spend hard-earned dollars on this equipment or these shop manuals and they're going to be meaningless to you without the education and as i said is that the education is the key because the tool is the tool the tool is only as good as the person that is using it and the data coming from the ECU is only as good as the person interpreting it and you're not going to I mean yeah you may have a hard failure at something and you could be a hero at one time but as I said most of the time it's just like reading a soil test it's be able to say well you know with your CEC I wouldn't do this I wouldn't deep in this and I'm just making up different things but um that you know as far as agronomy is concerned and it's the same thing that 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 happens in this industry so we need to be able to invest and the most important thing is we need to invest in ourselves with education and you know I'm, this is not a plug for my podcast and it's not a plug for my website but you know go to my website and read the different things around because you're going to need to for instance like this the the uh example i gave with the oxygen sensor a few minutes back and the carbon the carbon the engine how it's skewing the reading i mean i i i have a little article on that and you know get familiar with this start to learn you're going to need to start to learn and make an investment and i tell you it's fun it's fun it's exciting because all of a sudden none of this stuff works on magic you know just like in, in agronomy we're learning more and more each day how a plant grows and how nutrient uptake is from the soil and what the roots do and what the soil is doing and how important it is to have microbial activity in the soil and this is what you're going to find with the equipment side of it that it's 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 very exciting once you open your mind to it but you have to be able to open your mind and if you even go to my uh, under the learn tab on my website and for my workshops the one thing i tell you in my workshops is that you have to come with an open mind and you have to come being ready to work and what i don't mean physically i'm not going to give you a an axe and tell you to chop wood but if it i'm not politically correct if you're mentally lazy none of this stuff is for you 
So, you know, if, if you're just a, a soundbite type of guy and you don't want to get involved with this, then none of this stuff is for you as far as learning this is concerned. And if we get the right to repair or don't get the right to repair, then, you know, it, it's going to be moot. And uh, But I just want to touch on something I just thought of. <clears throat> for many years, I taught a programmable fuel injection class for a company called Axel DFI. And I taught it to their dealers, and I taught it to their prospective dealers. It was called um, EMIC, Engine Management Installation Centers. And we, I taught it either in Ohio, at either the University of Northwestern Ohio in Lima, or at the Mr. Gasket, uh, that was the parent company facility in Cleveland, and they were in the same complex where they made American greeting cards. Or they also had a... Um, some companies, a camshaft company, a piston company, Keith Black Pistons, Urson Cams out in Carson City, Nevada. So I taught that class in three places, Lima, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, and Carson City, Nevada. And I remember I taught a class, it was a two-day program, it was eight hours a day, it was 16 hours of, of training, and I taught the class by myself. And at the end of the sec at the end of the class at the end of the second day this gentleman and he had a, he was a fairly well known within the hot rod community carburetor builder in southern california and he came up to me at the last day of the class and he he wanted to thank me and he you know shook my hand and he said to me, this was really a great program. I learned so much, and I, you know, you kept me... And I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. I'm just telling you what he said. And he uh, he said, you know, this is great. I really learned so much. Da, 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 da. He says, and I really want to thank you. And I thought at that particular point, he was going to say, I want to thank you because I want to become an you know, engine management installation center and what have you. And he says, I really want to thank you because you gave me so much education in two days but the most important thing I learned is that I do not want to get involved with fuel injection and I'm not gonna it's too much of an investment in equipment it's too much of an investment in my knowledge and my learning curve and my experience he says and so I really want to thank you most for that because you saved me thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and if you were not so upfront with with the class about this, then uh, I would not be able to <laughs> to come away with that. I probably would have invested it, invested the money, and then been sorry. So I'm telling you the same thing: is that I'm a straight shooter. I don't candy coat stuff. I'm not trying to dissuade you, but don't make the. If we do get the right to repair, and we get these, you're able to buy these manuals. You could buy this, buy this diagnostic equipment, these scan tools, what have you. If you are not willing to make that commitment into learning the things that I that I said plus plus plus, then save your money and don't don't even go there. So it's not meant to dissuade you. It's meant to just it's meant to help you. But now what I want to do is before I close, I want to touch on a couple of things real quickly. Well. How can we combat this without making any real investment? The first thing is that, you know, friendships go a long way. And, you know, obviously at the Farm Machinery Digest, Hot Rod Farmer email, I could always help you. And it'd be no, you know, be, be no problem talking to someone on the telephone. But that's really not where you're going to get most of your help, sadly, is that friendships with your dealer go a long way that I know that I have a lot of friendships with my dealerships here with the car dealers, equipment dealers, and you know, I could go and answer and hey, you know, can I get, I I got a problem with this. Can you can you just you know go and Xerox make a copy make a copy of the shop manual for those couple of pages or if you have it on your computer just print it out and give it to me and I could follow this diagnostic routine. And I have never been turned down with the dealership that I've been friendly with. And you guys are much bigger farmers than I am. The majority of you, you spend a lot of money on equipment. And the thing basically is to make a good friendship, a good relationship with the people in the service department because they're a wealth of knowledge. And oftentimes, you know, what do you need to spend thousands of dollars on books for if you only need three pages from it? And if you're friendly with the guys in the shop, like I said, there's a 99.9% chance that they will print that out for you and give it to you for no, obviously for no cost. And also tell you, hey, Joe, you know, historically, when we see this code, look at the ground wire behind the, uh, behind the alternator. That's usually the problem on these pieces of equipment. So, you know, you spend a lot of money in parts, you spend a lot of money in equipment 
take that relationship from the sales department to the service department and to the technicians and to the service manager and you know the, the farm community any aspect of it is like family and i i think that's going to be a great plus to you if you establish that relationship you know it's akin to having a relationship with your banker right the second thing is take care of your equipment you know if you take care of modern equipment con- yes it's much more complicated than it was years ago and there's more things that could potentially go wrong but if you're good with taking care of maintaining your equipment and maintaining it the way the factory says if they tell you to use their antifreeze use their antifreeze don't you know don't get your dander up and then go i'm not going to use that because i got this other stuff over here if they tell you they want their hydraulic oil use their hydraulic oil if you have three different color machines and you have to buy three different oils so be it it's a lot cheaper in the long run and the equipment today is excellent and historically if you get through with new machine if you get through the first couple of months without any issues that means there's no manufacturing defects and then uh you know loose grounds what have you or pinch wires that you're usually golden for many many years and the third thing that i want to tell you is that anything as far as an engine is concerned whenever possible and you shut the engine down open the hood to let the heat out and this is going to sound you know you may think i'm nuts but it's not because the underhood temperature elevates drastically once you shut the engine down because the cooling system is no longer functioning and heat is the number one enemy to electronics to vacuum hoses to lines and to sensors and what have you so open the hood let the heat out and everything will last so much longer and you won't have any problems the goal here is not to have any problems not to need the the right to repair the fourth thing is if possible and you're buying a new piece of equipment consider a factory extended warranty and then the fifth thing is make a commitment in yourself to learn and i humbly ask you to start with this podcast and start with the farm machinery digest and learn 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 because knowledge is never wasted you know i grow sweet corn but i'll go to a seminar i mean i won't go to idaho for it but to learn about potatoes because there'll be something that i could take from that seminar so learn 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 how engines truly work learn electronics learn how to use your voltmeter and we will discuss that in the future podcasts so so that's basically it it's you know it's a great opportunity it's a great opportunity for you to educate yourself it's a great opportunity you know this technology is wonderful but the flip side of it it's a double-sided sword that there is complexity to it and we do have to make a commitment on our by, by we have to make a commitment to it so you know i'm hoping that you know we do get the right to repair but this doesn't uh come in vain and then we lose our credibility with the industry because we we fought for something and did nothing with it alrighty let me get to our uh, special delivery segment alrighty I'll read the first letter from Fred in Montana I have a 2010 Dodge 4500 with the Cummins diesel the truck runs great and always has since new recently when moving some cattle I noticed that the engine did not seem to pull as well up the hill to our farm I looked down at the boost gauge and it seemed lower than when going up the hill normally. Other than that, there is no problem. If you have any ideas why the boost is lower, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks. And as I said, Fred in Montana. Well, thanks for contacting me, Fred. The main reason for you to have lower boost uh, on a, on a, on a uh, turbocharged engine, be it gas or diesel, and no other issue whatsoever, is that, that there's usually a leak in the system and is a and it's the pressure is escaping before it gets into the cylinder and it could be a leak at a connection uh, so go around and check all the rubber connection hoses and the clamps and that is an intercooled engine and oftentimes on a rural truck on a farm truck or cattle or, you know, out in farm country ranch country is that you end up developing being a pinhole in the intercooler and it's bleeding the boost off another thing that's possible is that you could have carbon deposits on the wastegate and the wastegate is not closing and uh, it is leaking like a leaky faucet so if you go to my website uh, under the learn tab I have a more detailed article about that about looking at why engines have low boost and how to diagnose them but I would say the system has a leak it's and the easiest way to check that would be with a smoke tester 
uh, but that's a dedicated tool and if you don't have that I would go around and check everything at uh, the clamps uh, most of the time you could get to the wastegate flap by just taking the uh, the housing off the back of the turbocharger but I would say it's rare for you to build carpet on a wastegate in a truck that works but I would say you probably popped a pinhole in the core of the intercooler or have a leaky hose all right so check that out and let me know and if I could be of any more help just email me at hot rod farmer at farm machinery digest uh, the next question is a few months back I watched you on TV and you were talking about brake calipers for disc systems you mentioned floating calipers and explained it but can you go over that again thanks Joseph in New York uh, yes if a caliper has um, has motion on only one side it has one piston then when the when you step on the brake the piston moves out and the other part of the caliper the outside pad from the piston moving out gets pulled towards the rotor and then that causes the friction for the uh, to stop the wheel and if you have a multi-piston caliper now most of now you could have a floating caliper that has two pistons on one side but what you would determine whether it's a floating or what they would call a fixed caliper is that if the inboard pad and the outboard pad both have a piston if they have an if they both have a piston then that is what's called a fixed caliper and when you step on the brake hydraulically those pistons move there's a, either one or a set of pistons move the the inboard pad and then another set of pistons move the output pad and it squeezes the friction pad against the rotor on a floating caliper which 99% of them are today other than some sort of performance car application is that a floating caliper has one piston and as that piston is evoked the caliper the outside pad is pulled towards the caliper and causes friction and that is why as I said in that TV segment on the successful farming TV show is that if the if the um, the the movement points where I would say the pivot points really isn't pivot where it slides the slide points are corroded or dirty then what will basically happen is that you'll have the hydraulic motion of the piston coming out with the inboard pad but the caliper itself will not pull towards the outboard pad and the uh, or it will not release sometimes it'll come in and not release and not float back and then you're basically stopping on one pad or one and a half pad and usually the outside pad uh, wears prematurely so basically a fo floating caliper needs to have the mechanical contact points well lubricated and clean so it could function properly and when it, when they are clean then it's a great system and it's it's very very simple in engineering we call it kiss keep it simple stupid so uh that's what we say in engineering apply the kiss the kiss method don't overcomplicate something so a single piston caliper is great Listen, next week's podcast uh, is going to be thinking out of the box. I'm going to uh, bring up a bunch of ideas that you should evoke in your farm shop, thinking out of the box to help uh, make you successful. Remember, at you know, at the Idle Chatter podcast on my website, you know, we're all about saving you money and making you more efficient. Uh, so that's what it's all about. Remember, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. So listen, you have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit the website and uh, send in some I images to some of those community tabs. And as I always like to tell you, you're the hot rod farmer is pulling for you, the American farmer and rancher and our beloved nation. You take care and have a great week and hope you tune in next week. Bye-bye.